Vaxi's musical podcast. Resistance is useless. It's hard to imagine what the business of music would look like today without a handful of visionaries emerging along the way. While it's hard to overstate how much the record industry has changed over the decades, there was once a time where the major record labels would become the gatekeepers in choosing which artists would get signed, make records, get played on the radio, and then ultimately get paid. That model, while financially successful for many years, would often overlook emerging trends and upcoming artists simply because of the financial risk involved in banking unproven commercial viability of the unknown. From a business point of view, I suppose that makes perfect sense. But from an artistic perspective, maybe not so much. Occasionally, though, there have been some people who saw things differently. People who believed that the primary purpose of the record industry was not always about what would make the most amount of money. Instead, there were some who were far more focused on the music itself and the people who were making it. One such company was started in Jamaica by Chris Blackwell in 1959. The name of that record company was Island Records. And in a very brief period of time, Chris Blackwell would go from selling reggae albums out of the back of his car to becoming the single most successful independent record label in the world. Blackwell's vision and tenacity turned Island Records into an international juggernaut, one that would not only introduce the UK and the rest of the world to ska and reggae, he would also eventually transform the company into one that would sign some of the biggest names in music. But Island was more than that. Island would eventually diversify itself, branch off into different record labels, and seal distribution deals with others so that they could focus on different artists and genres in different areas of the world. By today's standards, that may not seem like such a big deal, but at the time, it was a pretty groundbreaking approach, one that would change music forever. This is a company that at one point on their roster included Bob Marley, Traffic, Roxy Music, King Crimson, Jethro Tull, Bob Dylan, Bad Company, Def Leppard, Brian Eno, Jimmy Cliff, Burning Spear, the Tom Tom Club, the Fairport Convention, Toots and the Maytals, Amy Winehouse, Anthrax, Blind Faith, the Spencer Davis Group, Bon Jovi, Elton John, Elvis Costello. The list is virtually endless. In 1989, Chris Blackwell sold Island Records, but by then his legacy was firmly cemented in pop cultural history. It's simply an amazing story about how an amazing company completely changed music as we know it. What hadn't been done until now is a full documentation of every song and every album produced by Island Records since its inception. But that recently changed following the release of the first of a multi-volume book series entitled The Island Book of Records, which has just been edited by the former head of press for Island Records, Neil Story. The first volume, which has just been released, focuses on the early beginnings of the company from 1959 to 1968. This is an exhaustive undertaking that leaves absolutely no stone unturned. It's a fascinating book that not only looks at Island's entire output of the course of those first nine years, it also highlights the company's most pivotal moments and most significant signings and releases, with each subsequent volume of the series digging deeper and deeper into the Island story, including the second volume, which is set to come out later this year. To talk about that, the book, and the music of Island Records is my guest today, former Island head of press Neil Story on Baxi's Musical Podcast. 
Congratulations on the uh, the release of the first volume of the book. It's amazing. And, uh, I mean, as I'm leafing through it the other day, it's like, you know, just based on what you've done in that first volume, this, I mean, this just had to be an exhaustive project to tackle. Tell me about how this even began. How do you even start something like this? Um, it sounds like the easiest question of all to answer. It's actually incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, it began because I was alone on a February evening in God knows when it was 2005, 2006, something like that in France where I live. And I was watching the TV and there came up this, this TV program where the producer had decided for reasons that I have never been able to figure out <laughs> that each of the performances that I watched or that he was playing out had to be captioned. And the captions were all wrong. And how did I know that? Well, because many of the groups portrayed on this program, I'd, um, I'd worked with and I knew the history. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. But the point being that this would go down as fact. And I thought, well, wait a second, this is nuts. And uh, quite a few of these were island artists. Mm. And I thought, no, I can't be having that. So incredibly slowly. I started to evolve this idea of what the Island Book has become or the Island Book of Records project has become, which was to basically tell the story of every record released through the eyes of the artists or the people associated with the records. Um, anyway, fast forward a bit. And I've known Kelly, who was co-founder of Spooky Tooth. You may also know him from The Only Ones and so on. And um, I'd known him since I was 17. And we'd kind of, we'd met. It's too long a story to go into how we'd met. But anyway, we met. <laughs> and on and off, and really on and off, we'd kept in touch over the years. Anyway, what with one thing and another, dear old Kelly dies. Hmm. Um he was suffering from cancer. Nobody knew other than, you know, obviously three or four people very close in the family. And so I'm standing there at the funeral and kind of suddenly, I mean, this sounds so trite, but it's not meant to be trite. And it suddenly dawned on me. I'd never, ever have another conversation with him. And Kelly was one of these people, and I'm sure you've come across them doing what you do, where you meet some people or you interview some people and they've got this phenomenal recall, really amazing recall of, oh, I was there with blah, 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 blah. And slightly to one side, the person I know who has better recall than anybody is the one person you wouldn't imagine. And that's Marianne Faithful. All really? those drugs, all that drink, <laughs> all that, everything. And she has the most incredible recall. Anyway, back to Kelly. And it suddenly dawned on me, I'd never, ever get to talk to him about when Captain bought what basically were the basement tapes back mm. from America, creamer out on, on the road. And and he sat there with Steve Winwood and Kelly and various others, and they played it's the first time this stuff had been heard. But Kelly could pinpoint exactly what happened. Never again are you going to have conversations like that. And that was the moment when it suddenly went into kind of proper focus. And it was like, no, this has to be done. 
And, you know, there was nobody backing it. There was nobody, equally, there was nobody saying, no, you can't do it. So I just got on with it. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I think one of the things that's important about documenting, you know, this period of time with Island and then, you know, really reflecting on it, you know, piece by piece and individual recording by individual recording is it's not necessarily just what Island represented, but with the business of music being what it is today and with people getting older, it's easy to lose sight of the importance of what companies like Island represented to people and our culture, you know, musical culture and, and in, in other ways too. I think that's kind of what you're, you're saying, you know, those stories fade over, over time and to not have that documented would really be a shame, especially something that had such a great story and history like Island records. It's, it, it's for me, it's the equivalent of being offered the, the opportunity to interview Rembrandt or Renoir or Matisse or Mozart and go, yeah, you know what? I think I'll do that next week. <laughs> People are dying. Yeah. And this is, we're watching a generation pass. You know, if, if you think back to the First World War, that is so little documented in comparative terms to what really happened. Why? Because people didn't bother. And then suddenly it was too late. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination, this is on a par with that. But what I'm trying to explain is, is how I see this being as important as it actually is. You know, one of the things that, that occurred to me during uh, you looking at the book is that the next three volumes of this series take you through the history of, of Island Records in two-year intervals, which is remarkable, yeah. you know, 69 through 70, 71, 72, 73, 74. And, it, and the, the meteoric ascendancy of a company like this in those first 15 years of its existence is unlike anything I don't think any of us have, have ever seen. And so to, to leave that undocumented would be a shame, but it just it really shows you the importance of this company and and really what it meant to the entire world uh the uk first and then the world but you're correct um secondly you can't give minimal space to albums that were coming out we're now talking about the second volume which we're working on at the moment um for what it's worth i'm sure it'll be i know it'll be heavier because (laughs) we're already at 450 pages uh, it'll be very pink. But <laughs> how can you not tell the story of, for example, John Barleycorn must die in the course of the Crimson King over pages? There's a lot to say. People have got a lot to say. These were groundbreaking records. They really were, you know? And 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 it's those stories have to be told. You can dig out bits from this website, that website, this book, that book, but it needs to be all gathered together. Plus, obviously, where we possibly can, we use contemporary interviews. It's interesting that you brought up King Crimson because you look online, you look on on YouTube, for example, and you can read stories about how groundbreaking they were in 1968, 1969, to the point where, you know, other bands were like, just, you know, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. But there's so little documentation of their live performances. I mean, other than the first album, it's nearly impossible to see what that band was like live. So much has, has been you know, removed. And so I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of those bands 
that I don't think people can even remotely understand until they have that, had that exposure of the first iteration of that band live and then on album and, and really the power of King Crimson. It's incredibly difficult to convey what that was like the very, very, very first time you heard it. For me, it was off of the Nice Enough to Eat sampler, and that was um, Schizoid Man. And I remember where I heard that. I was at a friend's house. He just got this. Or no, I got the record, but I hadn't played it because the idea was that I'd go and get the record, and then we'd have our first listen through at his house. I think maybe he had a better stereo than I did. Anyway, we dropped the needle on, and there it was. And this was like music from bloody outer space. And it was, although personally speaking, that's not a favourite track on that particular record, but that basically meant an immediate trip to the record shop to go and get the full album. And then you look at the cover, and it's like, where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I interviewed Mike Giles, who was the drummer on that. And what I didn't really know about was the technical aspects of all of that. And he told me this brilliant story, which was when they were playing, because there was only the, the one tour when they did uh, in America and obviously a lot of dates in the UK. But I was far more rehearsed than ever, I think, either you or I would have realised. And he said... There were bits when they get to a particular part in a particular song. Let's call it, I don't know, whichever one you want to call it. And he said, sometimes, he said, just to confuse everybody, I would play my drum part backwards. <laughs> and I sat there thinking, what are you talking about? How do you do this? But he knew it that well. And, he, and everybody would go, what's he doing? And then there would be another, it was all cue beats and cue this, that, and the next thing. So then he cues them in on another bit. How complicated <laughs> is that? But this is 1969, for God's sakes. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, just the tightness of that band is, is, is legendary. Oh. And, and then to hear like, yeah. you know, 21st century schizoid man, it's like, how is this even possible? How does a band become in that much in sync to play that song? It's no wonder they stopped playing it after a while. I understand that. I mean, I, I spoke to Chris about them, and he said they were the band. I just had to have them. Mm. And he said um, the two the two guys who managed them were um, both sadly dead now. They were old Herovians, a bit like um, like Chris was. And he said they were motorbike guys. And he said, I'm not a motorbike guy at all. But he said, I got a Harley Davidson as well. And I was careering around <laughs> and kind of haunting them. And he said, I nearly killed myself. But he said, I got them in the end. I got them and signed them. <laughs> and then, you know, I think that was the point. And we're slightly veering off volume one into volume two. Now. Sure. But I think that was one of the key points where Ireland suddenly grew into this. It was a different kind of company. And people, again, this is, I'm repeating what people have told me who worked there at the time, David Betteridge. And he said, people started to look at what we were doing. All the ads were different. The sleeves were completely different. You know, think about the records that actually had the front cover or gatefold cover, and there was no name. Yeah, that's right. That hadn't been done before. Think about it. Not done before. 
you know, the traffic second album off the off volume one. You know, it's just got the traffic logo. How cool is that? It's, it's, it's very cool. You know, it, yeah. it, it's hard to imagine, you know, a company like Island emerging today simply because of the way things are. But how do you assess the, the legacy of, of Chris Blackwell and, and, and starting this company from the ground up? Um, in awe, frankly. I mean, you've got to go back to the beginning, which is that, you know, he was importing Jamaican 45s into the UK and he was selling them out of the back of his car. So this is how small it was. And then David Batteries became involved and they split London between the pair of them. And David had a minivan and CB had a Mini Cooper and he took one part of London. David had the other part of London. And when they could afford another pressing, then they had records pressed up at, the, at Orlake, I think it was, um, at the pressing plant. They go down there, they pay everything was cash and they would sell their records into the record shops. And it was there was no airplay. There was no advertising. There was no there was no nothing. You know, this this is so if you think in terms of that's where it really began, very few people realize how skinny an operation this was. Yeah. Really how skinny it was. And then you look at how it then gradually became and the the the, the stepping stones, if you like, you know, there was the the signing of the Spencer Davis group, which basically means Steve Winwood, then the formation of traffic, and that becomes the first of the, if you like, cornerstones. Then you move on a little bit. The next cornerstone was the signing of of an artist who was already signed to Decca, or DRAM, I should say, um, which was Cat Stevens. Um, and Chris didn't even want to meet him. Did not want to meet him at all. And eventually he got, again, it's a long story, so I'll keep it brief, but eventually he got, he said, all right, okay, okay, okay. He can come and play me some songs. And the first song he played and the second song he played, yeah, that's all right. It's okay. It's not bad. Third song was Father and Son, mm. which was from Attila, became part of the Tillerman album. And th he said, that's it. I want to sign you. How do we get you out of the D-Round deal? Asks Cat Stevens, or how do I get out of that? And he says, Chris said, what you do is you go and tell your A&R guy, whose name I should remember, but I don't, you go and tell him that the next record you want to make, your heart is absolutely set on this, but it's with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic Choir, <laughs> and you want the extended version of the orchestra. And the A&R guy will say, I can't do this. The budget is just going to be two seats. And you have to say, look, my heart is set on this. This is what I want to do. And eventually they'll let you go. <laughs> Pretty smart. Yeah. And then Cat Stevens got signed. Then... Obviously, it's Bob Marley. I mean, what can you say? And then ultimately, the fourth, if you like, of the cornerstones um, became you too. You know, I was uh, watching the 2009 documentary, Keep on Running the 50 Years of, of Island Records. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, I, and I've you know, read this about Island too and about Chris Blackwell. One of the things that he is credited for is introducing reggae to the UK. But, you know, one of the things that uh, that allowed him to do that successfully was there was a major immigration of uh, Jamaican citizens to the, to Europe, and particularly to UK. 
and it, it, the luck of having that opportunity to take these records and bring them to England and then to sell them. And then, you know, as the years go on and you know, like the, there's the two-tone movement in Great Britain in the, uh, the late seventies, early eighties, who really, it, it integrated people in a way that had never been done before. I mean, to me, that's a very big part of his legacy too, is that they, he took this great music that no one had ever heard before the toots and the mates halls and, and, and turned it into like a cultural phenomenon. It's a shame that we didn't quite experience the same thing here in the U S but with in, in great Britain, it, it's, it's an undeniable part of, of that musical landscape. Well, it was a, if you think about it, it was kind of like a dance music because that's what everybody was doing, you know, from, you know, Scar and the Blue Beat and all that early, early stuff, which was being picked up by, as you correctly say, the Windrush generation, the immigrants. And then you have the mods at the varying clubs. The scene club is a perfect example, which is where Guy Stevens came through. Um, you have the mods and they're dancing and they latch onto Scar. You know, it's not exactly held back, shall we say, with the success of Millie and My Boy Lollipop for obvious reasons. I sure. mean, you know, six million copies of that around the world, that's going to up the ante, obviously. But it was much more than that. It became incredibly hip. It was this underground. People were talking about it again. The records are not advertised. They're not played on the radio. Where do you find them? You find them in your local record store. Where do you hear them first? You hear them in your local club. And that, it, it was literally one step at a time. And I think that's really important to, to emphasize. You, you mentioned My Boy Lollipop uh, by Millie Small. It's this massive international hit for, for Ireland. Was there any way they could have foreseen what that song was going to become? Back in 1964, was it a surprise to them that it was so successful? Oddly enough, Chris has always said he knew the moment they had the final playback that it was a gigantic hit. And that is why he didn't release it on Ireland, but he licensed it through to Fontana. Because at that point, Ireland was such a skinny little label, it just did not have the clout. Didn't have the resource to to handle a hit like that. Where Ireland starts to kind of fraction a little bit uh, and and divide you know some of its assets like Fontana. I mean that one of being a pretty big decision. You know I would think there was there would always be uh, a temptation to try to do whatever you could for a hit like that, even if it was you know, at the risk of the company or the risk of that particular hit, a pretty bold thing to have done for Chris Blackwell. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a bold thing. However, I think it's also a very savvy thing knowing when, I suppose it's a bit like, you know, if you're a gambler, you know, the moment where you have to stop, you know, you keep on putting stuff down on red all night and red's not coming up. There's comes a moment where you have to go, you know what, that's not such a smart move. And in a, I mean, this is a lousy, comparison but i think it was a really clever move going you know what the, this company is only it was only six people working there or whatever it was at that point you know we can't handle something like this therefore license it to the big company who can do this around the world it's a hit bish wash bish unbelievable your background is that you were the involved i think the former head of press for island at at one point 
which would put yeah. you in a pretty unique position to become the de facto historian for, for Island Records. How did you get involved over there? What was the, how did you get into it? Well, I was, I was working for EMI before that. And, um, we had week, uh, monthly sales meetings, um, on the, uh, all of the different areas, different territories of Britain. You'd have your monthly sales meeting and ours was in the South, um, South of London in a town called Horsham. And the Island guy, the island sales manager would appear every month. And this was the moment of all these meetings that I really, really looked forward to. And um, because, you know, basically it was kind of stuff that I wanted to hear as opposed to, you know, some kind of, anyway, Mantovani, not Mantovani, Manuel and the music of the magical mountains or stuff, <laughs> you know, which the shops weren't particularly interested in. Anyway, and he opens up his briefcase puts this white label on the, the deck, cranks up the volume to as high as it'll go. And that was the first time I heard Bob Marley. And that was Concrete Jungle, first track off of, off of uh, Catch a Fire. And I sat there and I went, oh, shit. This, <laughs> I need to make the move. I have to do this yeah. now. This is, this is where I need to be. Anyway, everybody around the table sitting there going you know what this isn't going to sell why isn't it going to sell because you've given us a cover that looks like a zippo rec zippo lighter and reggae records only sell if you've got a half nude female on the front and <laughs> you know you, you, you you're not giving us that this is not going to sell and i'm going and the guy who was sitting there was looking more and more dispirited and i'm thinking no this is this is something else i didn't know what it was honestly i didn't there's no point in kind of over-egging this. I had no idea what I was listening to. I just knew I was hearing something that was absolutely, utterly groundbreaking. Anyway, little little while later, I got an, I got a, you know, this is way before days of emails and mobile phones and stuff. So anyway, I got a call one evening at, the, at my house and it was a sales guy. And he said, look, we're going to be putting an island sales force together. Would you like to be part of it? So I said, sure. And he said, could you come in and and uh, talk to me about it? And I'll I'll kind of go through everything. Anyway, I got there, at, I don't know, six o'clock in the evening. And he said, you know, I don't want to do this in the office. Can we go to the pub? And I thought, <laughs> oh, this is rather refreshing. And he said, uh, okay, so we get in his car. And we literally got, I can tell you, the, the place on the road. And we were sat at a set of traffic lights and he turned england you drive on the right he turned and looked at me left and he said do you want the job and i went yep and that was the interview <laughs> and i was part of ireland at that point and anyway so it's a much longer story than that but that's that's how it how it began and um you know it was just one of those unbelievable rides that you never imagined it's like can you imagine being paid to do your hobby you know, it's, it sounds a bit sort of, I don't know, maybe it sounds a bit sycophantic. It's not meant to be that way at all, but it really was like that. I was paid to to do my hobby. So therefore, to do what I'm doing now is, you know, I stored a lot of information. I squirreled stuff away. One of the artists that I wanted to ask you about, because I've, I've read other interviews that you've you've done and you've mentioned you know, Nick Drake by name as being uh, one of your favorites in the island roster. and 
mm. what I think is really interesting about Nick Drake is he has only three albums that he recorded while he was alive. They are sparse, beautiful albums, all three of them. But this was a guy who refused to perform live by all accounts, very insulated type of person, very quiet, you know, prone to great deal of impression. When you have a guy like that, a tremendous talent and you know, amazing capabilities, it sounds like, like Nick Drake could have been a very difficult project for, for any record company to take on because in spite of the greatness that he, that he had, I mean, there were some limitations to what could be done in selling a Nick Drake album or promoting a Nick Drake album. If you're not willing to go out on the road or, you know, if, if you're just literally sitting there in front of a microphone with you and uh, a guitar and that's all there is, were there, and were there challenges with Nick Drake or, and, and, and what did Iowan see in him that, uh, that made him so important to the company? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Um, I grew up in the same village as Nick. Uh, my parents knew his parents. Uh, we did meet at some point during that very sort of formative time, but he was five years older than me um, or thereabouts. And, the difference between that age and my age is like the most enormous gulf sure. and you don't really even, you know, your sensibilities are different. You don't talk or anything like that. So it was a long time later that um, I became involved in anything to do with, with Nick's music. Um, one of the first things I did when I was at EMI was we were selling in Pink Moon Um I have to say, first off, I found Pink Moon the more difficult of the three albums. Brighter Later has always been the album that I return to. Uh, interestingly, John Wood, who engineered all three, uh, he comes over to us relatively regularly and we sit and we talk. He's always said, without any quibbles whatsoever, it's the one record he would never change a thing on absolutely not a thing which i kind of find interesting you know all the the remastering of this the oh let's we could remix this today because we have the technology now he wouldn't touch a thing which i find really interesting on that in terms of how did it work with ireland it's the same with pretty much every act believe this or not that you believed in them or you didn't believe in them if you believed in them, you went the extra mile, then you went another mile, and then you went a bit further along the road again. And if that didn't work, you went a bit further. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that Nick was a major artist. Nobody ever thought anything that he wasn't. There's no question about that. I've spoken to more than enough people who were there at the time. Everybody loved the music he himself he was you know he's quiet unbelievably shy at that point in his life so come the time of pink moon when he was really not in he was starting to be not in really good shape but you still went ahead you still did what you had to do you you, you didn't give up you really really didn't give up and the way that I can remember doing working on things like him was that you 
somebody came to stay, somebody you hadn't seen for ages, somebody, I don't know what it was, but but visitors or you became friendly with people in record shops or whatever it was. And, you know, people would play each other records they really liked. You know, that was part of the social thing at that time. And generally speaking, a Nick Drake record would happen into the mix at any given point. Another band I can remember this happening with is the Waterboys. Early days of the Waterboys, they really sure. weren't selling. But I can clearly remember playing people when um, This Is The Sea came out and a friend of mine came to stay and playing it to him. And he sat there absolutely polaxed. It was exactly the same with with Nick's music. You know, Joe Boyd has this thing that, you know, you would play it to a, a potential girlfriend. And if she didn't get it, or the other way around, <laughs> if she did, she or he didn't get it, that was there was no relationship going to happen. <laughs> you know, and it's it's kind of true in a way. It is kind of true. It's a very personal thing. So is there a surprise that he now has this extraordinary acclaim the songs were always there it just need maybe he was a bit ahead of his time i i think an argument can be made that he was you know ahead of his time i mean how many artists have you heard since nick drake that are trying to recreate that magic of nick drake it, 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 there's very very few that have done it successfully but there certainly have been a, 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 you know plenty of people who have given it a good try yeah but you can't you can't recreate nick there's only one. I mean, this is coming back to Ireland. You know, there was only one what, Whalers. There was not another one. There was only one Jimmy Cliff. There was only one Cat Stevens. You can't kind of have a secondary one down the road. You know, there was only one Traffic. And you take those component parts out of Traffic, what are you left with? You know, you take Woody out, so you've got no sax, no flute, no kind of weird shit going on in the background doesn't sound like them anymore very very important so you know spooky tooth are the same so in a funny sort of way we never ever thought about oh this isn't being successful it was about how do we keep going on it and it didn't matter the fact that somebody's not giving you all the help that they can because yeah. you had to accept you know the artist came first that's the most important thing Nowadays, you don't get that. There is a record company out there that actually puts its artists first because there really isn't. Well, I want to ask you about that because the music industry as a whole has taken a, 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 a real beating over the years, and a lot of it is self-inflicted. Um, and it's whether, yeah. whether it's you know, the technology that's, that's come by over the last 20 years or the, the lack of foresight or you know, whatever it may be, whatever it was. I mean, music right now is in a very tough position. Uh, you're trying to figure out, you know, what it wants to become and how it can become viable. And, you know, a lot of artists are becoming a little bit more in touch with taking part in other aspects of the business that they would never normally have had to take you know, part in. It really has changed the way music is sold and the way it's distributed and, and not to the benefit of the artist or to the music. What's your take on that and where music is today and, and the, the role of a record company? as it stands now because it is so different well all i can tell you is i'm 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 kind of happy that i don't work for and haven't worked for a record company for a very long time um because 
I tend to think that I'm unemployable in that respect. God, it's such a difficult question to answer. What is the role of the record company today? Well, all I can tell you is it's not the role that, in my view, it should be, which is nurturing the artist that they've found. To my view, it is not dressing them up in the latest outfits coming off of wherever is trendy. What's the one thing? that will last forever and ever and ever after the, the singers have gone, the music, the, the bands have gone. What's the one thing that, that, that lasts forever? It's the song. They, in my view, should be nurturing the writers and the artists to create a new, whatever it is, patch of songs that just aren't there at the moment. I can't think frankly, of anything I've heard in the last 20 years that I think I'm going to be listening to in 30 years' time if I'm still around. Really, I can't. You can list out hundreds of records, so it's pointless even trying to do that. But you have to give people the time. You know, you 2 would have been dropped without question after the second album because the second album didn't sell. Why wasn't it? Why weren't they, rather? because there was a, two factions in Ireland at that time. There was the faction that believed in them, and then there was another faction headed by then the then MD, mm. who lost the job. Yeah, I, I think that uh, this is such a self-inflicted wound uh, <laughs> with, yeah. with, the, with the music industry. And I think, you know, like right now, we've, we've, we've taken formulas and just tried to reiterate them over and over and over again and regurgitate things that have worked in the past. And we've lost our way into believing, well, if it's a good enough song, then all of a sudden people start buying records again when people can stream very easily. And it, you know, the, the, the financial aspect of it has changed the landscape too. Sure. But two points on that. One, does the artist earn out of streaming answer? Well, we know what the answer is. Secondly, you, the streamer, what do you get? You get, the song compressed heavily yes you can play it on your whatever it is device but that's it so you're not creating any kind of an experience for the listener where are the sleep notes where are the pictures where are all those things that could be put up online with spotify what are the other streaming companies are called yeah yeah but all of them could actually go you know what we could make this better for the end user, for the consumer. Then you do think something like that, then the artists who hate the idea of streaming will go, you know what? Actually, they're making it all right. It could, it could work for everybody, but it's not. And at the bottom of that is, in my view, is the an attitude which is, in inverted commas, that'll do. They don't need this. They don't need that. That'll right. do. We've got the music out. That's fine. Well, believe you me, you know, I don't, why do I want to stream stuff? I don't. I know there's another generation that are, but for God's sakes, you know, make it a pleasurable experience. You know, you remember the days when you bought records for the first time and you sat there with your album on your lap and 
you'd read the notes, you'd look at the pictures, you'd do this. It was a real experience. Now there's no experience. It's a fleeting moment. It, you're in and out of that moment and you know, to not have the, the, the joy of a physical item to follow along, you know, read the lyrics or, you know, read the notes or I, I totually agree with that. It, it, it's a, it, it is the, the art of it all has been nothing more than a lost art. That That's to me, it's the biggest, the biggest shame in music is, is, is only relying on like the digitizing of, of music as opposed to having that physical media that, you know, to this day, I can't, you know, I, I can't part with any record or CD that I own. I just, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. To me, those those moments in in your life when you get that and that excitement of opening you know, opening up that record and experiencing it for the first time, those are real joys in in, your, in a person's life. And and they I stick, couldn't agree more. Stick with you forever. Yeah, they do indeed. And yeah. also, it's a bit like you know, you start at the first track and you finish at the last track. It's a bit like, but no, nowadays you can do it. Turn it off about phase. Oh, I don't like that one. We'll ditch that. And you you know, fine. But what you're missing out on is the entire story. Now, you buy a book, you start on page one, you finish on page 371. You don't skip bits out. I don't know. I mean, I just think it's I think there is I think the record companies, you're quite right, everything has changed. Um great, let's embrace that change. Fantastic. But for God's sakes, let's start doing things with other people in mind, as opposed to the profits. Yeah. You know, there's more to life than that. I think the uh, the second volume of the book you talked about, uh, you know, you're working on that now, 1969 to 1970. Is there a time frame of of when you expect that to be out this year, or or is it still too soon to know for sure? No, no, we have deadlines. Um, our wonderful friends at Manchester University Press. Um, I got the call a few days before Christmas. Here are the deadlines. And it's like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I know when we have to deliver uh, final files. And the idea is that um, this time around, it was kind of staggered in terms of publication. It published um, a good six weeks early in the UK compared to your country. So the idea, I think, this time around is that everything is, you know, revolves around a single date. Mm. Um, I kind of roughly know when that is. Let's just say it'll be, I think, either late October or very, very, very early November. But um, it's just, I mean, this is the pink one. This is the, dare I say it, this is the sexy one. Um, you know, <laughs> island, pink label, Christ sakes. I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets, doesn't it? The uh, the first book is uh, is really beautiful, Neil. You mean it's something to be truly proud of. You've done a wonderful job documenting. Well, the, it's it's the Jane. Story. It's Jane who's who's. It's Jane who's designed it. I just do the heavy lifting. She turns it into something that looks fantastic. And MUP are gracious enough to go. You know what? You know what you're doing. Just hand it in. Um, and <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of errors on it, but you pull something like that together. I'd be amazed if there wasn't. Neil, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait to see the second uh, the second edition, but I appreciate the time today. It's been it's been great actually, and sometimes I kind of really look forward to actually having a chat about this. <laughs> and sometimes I kind of go, you know what? This has been a really really good conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. The Island Book of Records, nineteen fifty nine through nineteen sixty eight 
is available now through Manchester University Press with a second volume focusing on 1969 through 1970 coming out this fall. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can get all the regular updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.